0: I'm Sam Bombus, and you're listening to Thought Starters. We're recording live from the pod, White City Place's very own recording studio. If you're listening to Thought Starters, simply hit subscribe and catch more episodes from my co-hosts Liv Siddle, Emma Hote Almud, and Kemi Olivia. Of all the curious minds I revel in, Linda Rodriguez McRobbie, a freelance writer and journalist, is possibly my absolute favorite. She writes for all sorts of publications, The Guardian, Smithsonian Magazine, The Boston Globe, but we tend to to collide and get really excited about very, very specific matters. The history of Ouija boards and their potential or the impact of infrasounds on human perception. She's recently co-authored a book on pain. It's called Ouch, Why Pain Hurts and Why It Doesn't Have To. I began by asking her, why do we need pain?
1: We need pain. We need pain. I mean, one of the um one of the people that we talk about in the book is a guy called Stephen Pete who was born with what's called congenital insensitivity to pain, right? And he cannot perceive no So no is sort of it's not pain exactly, and that's a sort of big area because mm-hmm. pain is a much, much more complicated, much more sort of wide-ranging experience than just out have stubbed my toe or out have broken my arm. Um, but he can't feel the pain from the subtoe or the broken arm, so he can't. He doesn't know that mm-hmm. that's happened. And people with that, um, with that particular genetic mutation, tend not to live very long. Now, He's in his 40s now, so he's lived for. For you know, he's managed to survive the odds, but. Um, they are prone to infection. They are, you know, when they're infants, they can do things like chew their own tongue off and not realize it. Oh, wow. Because pain is a really, really important warning system. Mm. And pain is part of the sort of setting up of the parameters of our lived experience. Mm. You know, when something doesn't feel good, we either don't do it again or we do it more in a different way. It really kind of depends on you know how you feel about it. but. Generally speaking, you know, pain is a necessary part of life. So, what is pain, even? <laughs> oh, that—that that is why we wrote a book. Um, so, pain is a very. So, I always find pain a really fascinating thing because it's—it's it's a bit like um, the Supreme Court definition of obscenity, where you—you you know, you know it when you see it, right? You know it when you experience it. You probably experienced it before. You might not want to do it again. Um, But it's this one word that we use to describe an astonishing variety of experiences. You know, we talk about arthritis being painful. We talk about a broken heart being painful. We talk about childbirth being painful. Mm -hmm. You know, we talk about um, boring experiences being painful. We talk about a lot of things being painful, and we use this one word. Mm -hmm. And I think what that really kind of gets at is that this is an experience that is much, much more complex and it's derived from a host of things, not just sort of the proximate cause. So when we think about pain, we want to think about pain as a complex, constructed experience that is the result of not only the sort of thing that's happening right now, but your expectations, um, your previous experiences with this, your affective state, who you're with, um, the steps that you might take to mitigate it—you know—the it, it, difference between, say, you know, going on a run, mm-hmm. right? Most a lot of people go for a run. A lot more people have been going on a run lately, and it—it's uncomfortable. It can genuinely hurt. You know, like when you're you're plodding along, something is gonna be not feeling good. But we don't necessarily think of that as painful. We don't think of it as the kind of experience we don't want to do again because we do it almost every day. Lots of people do it every day. It's it's an experience that because of the context and the, the sort of padding around it becomes something not quite painful. So we don't want to avoid all pain and we don't avoid all pain. Lots of people get tattoos. Lots of people get their ears pierced, things like that. And We don't want to always muffle pain because that's part of the experience of living.
0: So how did you become interested in
1: pain? So, um, well, basically, Margie Kerr is my co-writer on this. She's a sociologist in America. And she found an article that I had written about the history and psychology of clowns being scary. Um, and evidently we have a lot in common. So she, uh, she is a sociologist who largely studies fear and why people will willingly engage with fear. And one of the things that she noticed was that oftentimes when they were trying to invoke a state of fear in the lab, they would use the threat of pain or actual pain. And her feeling was that fear and pain are two very different circumstances, right? Those are two very different situations, emotions. They're they're different. They're not the same. So she wanted to explore pain from multiple different perspectives and to get a sense of why people willingly engage with it, why so many more people than we think hmm. would do willingly engage with pain. Um, and we've got sort of, you know, this goes beyond sort of people thinking about oh, BDSM and things like that. This is lots of people use the experience of pain in some way, to make themselves feel better or just in, in in daily life. I mean, you know, I always go back to the, the example of running because I run and it's painful. And part of what makes running an effective sort of mental health tool in some ways is the fact that when you're in pain, you can't concentrate on the stuff that you're ruminating on. You can't concentrate on the things that are giving you anxiety because you're you you you've just you have to deal and you have to focus your resources on this very immediate thing that your sympathetic nervous system is dealing with it's just really good at disrupting ruminating patterns things like that do
0: you have any uh, tips or advice on <laughs> how people can use pain positively in their life
1: well, I, I do. I mean, so one of the things that happened over the course of writing this book was that I decided that I wanted to have a, have a relationship with pain that was something that I could manipulate over time, Just use some of the things that we talk about, because we, we talk a lot about reframing and we talk about sort of the tips that like ultra-marathoners ultra and people like that use to get through painful experiences and what that might imply for your daily life. So as part of that, I started swimming. Um, and, uh, and then I also started running. And those, um, <laughs> swimming is not generally super painful, but uh, running is not the most comfortable thing in the world for me. And I do find, though, that the sort of significant outlay of physical resources that is involved in something like running or swimming or some sort of exercise is really a useful way to manage other emotions. One of the things that happens when you are in a state that could be considered pain, like when you're running and you know, you're in sort of 10K on and you're like, I'm really, really, really done with this experience because everything hurts – Um, you're benefiting at that point from some of the things like your endogenous opioids that are coming in to sort of help you manage that experience. You're benefiting from the fact that you can't think about all the other stuff that's going on in your life. You can't really ruminate on these things. Um, And it's just sort of helping you get through it. And then afterwards, the fact that you have managed this experience that most people would consider painful is a really uplifting feeling. So I think that's one of the ways that using pain, that you can use pain in a positive context. The other thing that has happened as a result of writing this book is that um, I'm swimming the channel on a channel relay team. And this weekend is my qualifier. And so to qualify to be able to swim on a channel relay team, you have to um, swim in water that is less than 16 degrees for an hour and a half. You get out, you warm up in under an hour, and then you get back in and you swim for another hour. And cold water... Like, I know it's been really popular this winter, I think largely because so many things have been closed. And, you know, also, like, there's great pictures on Instagram of people jumping in really super cold water and looking really happy about it. Um, it is really, really painful. It can be really, really painful. And uh, and that is one of those things where I get out and I'm like, why Why did I do that? Why is that happening? Why am I doing this? What, is, what am I getting out of this?
0: But you've, you've written a book now. You I can, know. You, you, you don't have to continue subjecting I, I, yourself I, I, to cold water I, One of
1: my treatment. friends keeps telling me, he's like, you don't have to live like this. I'm like, but I have to. It's happening now and I'm going to do it. And actually, it does get better once you... I think what, this is one of the genuinely remarkable things I think about uh, cold water experiences is that, yes, it is painful. Like, you get in You know, from the very beginning, one of the things that happens is, um, and this can even happen in water that's just like 15 degrees. It's not, you know, it doesn't have to be that cold. But um, your heart starts beating very wildly, and you can start to hyperventilate. Most of the reasons why people die in cold water isn't because of hypothermia. It's because they drown, because they can't regulate their breathing. So once you get over that, then, and you put your face in, the water, the cold hit water hitting your trigeminal nerve, prompts almost immediate ice brain freeze. Like, and it's like it's like you've had you know you have had a whole slurpee and it's really really cold and you're just it's really really painful. Um, and then once you get through that, you have a sort and you haven't <laughs> died, and you you know you can feel good about the fact that you haven't died, and it feels and it's nice. And then then you sort of have to deal with the fact that like now you know one of the things that happens to me is. Um, I start to, my hands get very, very cold, and I start feeling this sort of electric nerve pain that goes right up my arms every time I move, and you sort of feel this, like, zing, it goes up, and then zing. That's when it's it's really cold. That's like, really, really cold.
0: You know, I'm sort of interested, so so a lot of our understanding of pain is is your sense of touch. Yeah. Um, Your other senses have different functionalities, a lot of which Mm -hmm. do to do with stopping you getting killed mm-hmm. and protecting mm-hmm. you from that um i guess in some ways so um a disgust maybe a disgust mechanism oh, yeah. um is is a gradated you know in the same way you get scales of pain which yeah. have, some medical sadists have <laughs> <I'm very
1: laughs> bravely t- yeah.
0: bravely or conno- connoisseurs of pain have <laughs> uh tapped you know i guess that are there are there scales of well disgust that operate similarly.
1: There there are definitely sort of ranges within things w- ranges within the experience or the sensory perception of nociception that um are where danger might happen, where where tissue damage is, is potential or where some kind of damage is, is a potential. So to, to back that up a little bit, um Nociception is primarily communicated through, you have chemical nociceptors, um, you have thermonociceptors, uh, you have mechanical nociceptors. Those are sort of the the three big ones. Um, Thermonociceptors refer to hot or cold pain. So, uh, and there's this kind of... um, Safe zone where like things aren't you know you feel good you feel good in them but then sort of below this you know below a certain degree and above is where things start to get a bit dangerous and what's really interesting I think about um the sort of thermoreceptor communication is that it tends to be kind of one note right like it has like one note of an alarm you know and so that's why sometimes when you get in very very cold water it feels like burning and it's not so much like that's mixed up it's just that there's one note and that alarm is going, you need to deal with this because it's bad, right? Um, Mechanical nociceptors deal with pressure and that has to do, I think that also will manage things like vibration. So if you're thinking of like um, the pain from hearing a really loud sound Part of that actually has to do with the vibration of what's going on inside your Mm -hmm. ear. So those vibrations are going to be sensed by mechanical nociceptors. And that's going to be sort of read as not positive. And then chemical nociceptors are the ones that deal with things like capsaicin, you know, which is the active Mm -hmm. ingredient in chilies. Um, and uh, other sort of chemical-based things that are telling you, you don't want to touch this. This is not good. What's really, really interesting to me about, about this is that sort of these are the sensations that we have the tools to play, right? So one of the things that we talked about in this book, and I think we ended up not using this analogy, but it's a little bit like how, how do you play music, right? So you, you, you know, back in the day, we had a tape deck. And then we had CD players, and, you know, you can have MP3 and things like that. And you, you can only feel that sensation because you have the right thing to play it. Mm. You know, so you've got, you can listen to your CDs because you have a CD player. You know, so you have the thing that can that can play that media. And that's, so that's sort of the way our sensations work. We ha- like, it comes in... And we can feel it because we have the right receptor to deal with it. But it makes you think, like, what are the things that we are happening around us that we don't feel? And there are other species that have different kinds of receptors. So there's um, insect species that have receptors that enable them to feel humidity and to test to be able to understand the moisture content of the environment around them. And then there are species that lack the same ones that we have. So the naked mole rat is a fantastic example who uh, <laughs> very, very... Ugly creature, but very sweet. Um, but it is impervious to certain kinds of pain because it lacks the chemical nociceptors that we have, so it doesn't feel uh, the burn from capsaicin, for example. So it's really interesting that like it makes you wonder what what else like what are what are we missing from our perception?
0: Well, I'm, I'm quite inspired now when you're talking about that. If you do a um, like, if you go to a concert and you have you know or listen to an album. Could you have a sort of symphony of, of uh, played on your pain receptors? Oh yeah, which sounds quite quite sort of uh, Kubrick Clockwork Orange esque.
1: Well, I think you could you could certainly have you know like part of the the creation of our perception of the world is through these receptors. It's through what we can sense, um, but it, it isn't just one thing. I mean, this is part of the reason why, for example, you know we see faces in. Um, Grilled cheese sandwiches and patterns. It's it's these these sort of shortcuts that we make, these kind of cognitive shortcuts and neural shortcuts that allow us to put together a pattern to make sense out of it. And so, when all of the other stuff is there, all of the other cues and things like that, then we uh, we you know other sort of sensory cues we can we can kind of put together a picture, even if the thing itself isn't there. And so my favorite example, so one of my favorite examples from the book, is. Um, is there was a there was a story that we used uh, of a, a builder who stepped on a nail. It was 15 centimeter, inch long nail. Right? Wow! Went straight through his boot. Right? He was in absolute, complete, utter agony. You know. And so they took him to the hospital, and they had to dose him up with some fentanyl and some other drugs to like calm him down and get him ready. You know. And they pulled the nail out, and then they took the boot off, and it had never actually punctured his foot. It had gone between his toes. So he had all of the cues were there, right? All of the cues of what would should be a very painful, painful experience were there. And so he created this instance of pain because all of the cues were there, all the other sensory inputs, except for the key one, which would have been the nail actually puncturing his foot. But that's how we create our sense of the world, right? Is is through these cues. It's through these previous experiences that we've had and our associations with them, and it it can be very, very powerful. Very powerful.
0: Do you, Do you know what happened when they he went back on site and saw his workmates?
1: <laughs> so we actually mentioned that um, that uh, there was there was no. Unfortunately, the report did not mention what happened after that, which is really sad because. I want to know that poor guy. I
0: think that must be the most painful of all of them. Yeah. Of that,
1: again. like, his pride. Hmm.
0: I'm Sam Bompas, and you're listening to Thought Starters. Placebo is,
1: is such a useful and important tool that we don't use as much as we should and so I'll give you a personal example um I uh I so like I said I run a lot and I was really sore one day and one of my running mates was like oh you should try magnesium spray and I was like say what now and I tend not to believe a lot of things like that but I started using this magnesium spray and I genuinely think it works. I don't know if it works because I believe it works or if it works because there's some sort of physiological thing that is actually happening. If, you know, if I am sort of, you know, cellularly, cellularly taking up more magnesium and that's sort of easing the sense of pain and soreness and things like that. But whatever the mechanism, it's working because is working it's not i'm feeling a lessened sense of pain
0: well i guess i guess as, as a humanity we've we've experienced very rapidly growing scientific knowledge and yeah. going from Savan sort of knowledge to different theories to
1: yeah. contested
0: different theories from depending who you ask to, um,
1: <laughs> and we certainly have more science. tools at our disposal right now to to investigate these things i mean one of the things that we found really interesting in the book is um we talk quite a lot about neuroscience. And there was this sort of impulse, I think, in the last probably 15 years, maybe even a little bit more to sort of locate everything in the brain, you know, like headlines, like, oh, and part of that also has to do, I think, with the the kind of popular perception of how to talk about science, which tends to sort of distill things to a headline that may or may not be accurate or entirely useful. So there was this sort of, perception in this this idea that that you could you could locate everything in the brain where it lives in the brain this does this and this does that and really you know what seems to be coming out now is that actually the things the sort of the way that we create our universe and the way that we create our sensations our experience our emotions all of these things is the product of multiple interconnected neural networks so it's not just you know this is where jealousy lives. I mean, it's a little bit like you know phrenology, where you feel around for the bumps on somebody's head, and, and you'd be like, oh, this is where you know love of liquids lives, and this is where like care for animals lives, and things like that. Um, you know, those, it, It's it's much more interconnected in how how these experiences and how our emotions and how all of these things work. But, you know, again, like parsing out what that means, what brain activity means to the person who's experiencing it, you know, that's where where science has some, some difficulty. And I think um, a lot of the uh, the kind of <laughs> damage to some degree that's been done to sort of how we think about. Emotions and how we think about the sort of psychological inner lives of people, um, from Descartes on, this idea that mind and body are separate—you know, they're they're buddies, they're like flatmates that get along, but they don't necessarily affect each other in the way that they they should—and that's really problematic and really wrong because you know you are your body. Mm. <laughs> that's that's all of the ways that you make up your experience of life is through your body, but also through everything that you're thinking, your sort of psychological inner life is also part of all of this. Mm. So
0: is there, is, there, is there a way that we could communicate pain better?
1: Um, I think part of it has to do with I think at the very basic level it has to do with being more empathetic and understanding that other people do experience pain you know right now the kind of gold standard of pain reporting is the patient's report and that also makes it quite complicated when there are people who can't advocate for themselves whether they're you know or who can't communicate the well, pain it might, that they're might in been
0: brought up to be very stoic yeah <laughs>
1: and, and there's also you know that's true like there there are cultural differences within it as well but you know people who literally can't say infants you know this, one of the one of the most shocking things that we read in this is that up in up until the 1980s um, infants in America routinely underwent open heart surgery without anesthesia and that was largely due to two things one was the concern that the anesthesia itself would actually kill or harm the baby but the other was that um, this erroneous assumption that they couldn't feel the pain that they hadn't developed the appropriate networks yet to experience pain and that was partly due to some studies that had been done in the 1940s that showed that infants didn't react to pin prick tests in the same way that older infants did now That was later sort of found to be false, but there was this disconnect between what the pediatric surgeons were doing and what literature was available and the research that was done. And it didn't change until 1987 when the American Association of Pediatrics released a statement saying you can't keep doing this
0: so they're they're now interviews with some of those uh some of those uh then infants who now presumably are quite (laughs) articulate about their feelings
1: (laughs) i mean it would be hard to say if you were six months you know six weeks old and and experiencing this but but there are you know even if they can't remember it there are undoubtedly effects that that come from that you know there are there are there's definitely evidence that experiencing significant pain early on changes how you perceive pain later um, and you know rates of things like chronic pain being higher among children who've had painful experiences early on. And that also has to to do with what we would primarily consider like emotional painful experiences. In the book, we don't really make much of a distinction between the two because we consider pain to be an emotion. It's a constructed experience that's derived from lots of things, not just the kind of proximate situation
0: so I think if if ever there's a um Uh, a a reason that you should be uh, reading Linda's book it's he'll give you the language to communicate the gold (laughs) standard to any any uh medical scientist who's investigating your pain so you can get the right treatment
1: but it's really it's really frustrating that 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 has to be part of it I mean because there's loads of studies too that we have a we we talk quite a lot about bias in the medical community and there is a significant amount and it tends to be you know and part of this has to do with that for a very long time, doctors had been white men and white, relatively wealthy men. And that biases the medical establishment against the experience of people who are not white, relatively wealthy men. Um and you really see that when it, you know, when it comes to things like, I think there was a study in 2016 that demonstrated that black children presenting at the emergency department with appendicitis were, like, half as likely to get pain medication than white children. Um, you know, it, you see it in ageism, like, there, there are, you know, people, there, there are studies that demonstrate that uh, older people are less likely to get pain medication when they're reporting pain, things like that. So... It's a, it's a significant problem. Not believing the pain of other people has demonstrable consequential effects in, in policy, in institutions, in medical care.
0: You know, uh, along normative, male dominated, historic 20th century childbirth practice in, in the medical establishment, there was a school of thought that, that was like, oh, basically, childbirth isn't that painful. Oh, wow. <laughs> it is and and like all all of women were making it up a little (laughs) bit (laughs) and then to then to then to establish how painful childbirth was a number of medics volunteered their pregnant wives (laughs) and um, when they were giving birth they would um, hold a paint stripper to their arm and the 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 Uh, wife would say what was more painful the the birth or basically having your skin burn. oh off. my god
1: i didn't know this i think like you're telling me i definitely had not heard this that it's is horrific. crazy it's
0: horrific and then and then fun and then funnily enough it got to people who are literally having third degree burns Jesus. um you know and still and obviously still saying and by childbirth is still more painful oh my god
1: um, i did not know that that's yeah i mean it, i like it, it it kind of makes sense but like i yeah, when it comes to believing the pain of women, we don't tend to, right? And that's you know that has to, again has to do with who was in charge of mediating this experience of pain and of the sort of medical establishment being again largely white men who were relatively well off. Um, but I hadn't heard that. I mean, the, the childbirth is a really great experience to talk about when it, when we talk about pain because it is very very variable. I mean, one of the people that we talked to in the story is a is a woman who. Who helps women have orgasms during birth, and which like I've had two children and that was not part of my experience. Um, but you know, and and she said that you know, that that shouldn't be the standard that we all achieve. Like we we shouldn't. Does she, try. Give,
0: the, does she give the secret in your book? She,
1: well, she she does. She gives a lot. She gives Great. some tips. <laughs> she gives some tips. But um, you know, she she did say though that like the experience of giving birth. Again, you know, the pain that is is associated with that, there is real pain, obviously is real pain. But some of it, a lot of it has to do with the the context and the circumstances. So when actually we, and we, this story didn't appear in the book, but it was part of the proposal when we wrote it, it was a friend of mine um, had delivered her own baby in the downstairs bathroom of her house. And this was the story that we sort of passed around among our friends. We were like... I'm sorry, is this on the Oregon Trail? Like, how did she do this? This is bonkers. And so I sat down and I talked with her about it. And for this experience, she she had already had one child. Um, and she had been in hospital. And she felt very disenfranchised. She, she felt very, um, you know, it, it just was a bad experience all the way around. She felt like she wasn't in control of this experience. She felt like she was being belittled at various points. Um, she had had gestational diabetes. And so she had to be induced and and that kind of created a very medicalized experience that she wasn't comfortable with and sort of throughout she was being told like you know she she would say things like you know I'd like to to labor on all fours and the the midwife would be like you know oh you've been reading those books so the next time around she was like we're going to do it at home. I'm going to get a doula and and it's going to be more comfortable. It wasn't supposed to go quite like that where she was delivering the baby by herself and no one was there in the downstairs bathroom. And the the way she describes it was that she just, she didn't really know that she was as close to actually delivering the baby as she was because in her previous experience, she'd been very sort of divorced from that. You know, she'd been induced, she'd been on her back, she didn't know. Um, But she said that she went into the downstairs bathroom and she did... What she describes as a deep plie, (laughs) and and there was a baby. Um, And she said that, you know, strangely enough, like, it wasn't that her first experience had been much, much more painful. This was surprising in some senses, but it wasn't painful because she felt like she was in control the whole time. And that is one of the most important elements of the experience of pain, is how much you feel like you're in control of it. You know, and you've probably noticed that, like... Like, um, well, <laughs> one, of, one of the funny things that my co-writer and I actually did share as an experience was that when we were teenagers, we both tried to pierce our own belly buttons and, um, neither experience was particularly successful. Um, but we both talked about how it was so much easier to do that ourselves because you're in control of that experience and you know it, <laughs> mine didn't work out and <laughs> hers didn't work out but um but you know you when you are able to to manage and to to when you're in charge it becomes easier to to deal with that
0: so if you want insights on uh, taking control of your pain <laughs> um potentially achieving orgasm during doing childbirth Ouch, why pain hurts and why it doesn't have to is um uh, the publication to pick up. Thank you very, very much for, Thank you um, so much uh, for joining us me. to explore the wider realms of, of pain. Um and also a lot of other I think we cover quite a lot of, lot of lot of grounds as well. Um but it's been it's been so much fun. Thank oh, it's you very, been very much.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It was really fun.
0: Thanks for listening to Thought Starters, a podcast on modern day culture from White City Place, West London's creative campus. Join our growing community by following at White City Place across Instagram, Facebook, and more.